Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This summer, we are back in the book of Psalms. John Calvin rather famously wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms sing high joys for salvation and the beauty of this world, and yet meet us in the low places as we cry out for justice and weep over the sorrowful state of this world. All of life, absolutely all of it, is invited to be laid before our Lord in the Psalms, these prayers and songs to God. So we'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon, and God bless. Lord, as we turn uh, now to Psalm 59, as we give our attention uh, to this part of your word, would you uh, soften our hearts to receive from you? Would you unstop our ears that we would hear you? Uh, Would you give us eyes that we would behold Jesus as love? And lovely, you God who is love. Be with us and speak to us. Uh, we've come here wanting to hear from you and to meet with you. In your precious name, Jesus, amen. All right, um, this may not be the way that you thought Psalm 59 would start, or I'd start Psalm 59 having just heard it, but uh, there is a brilliant Saturday Night Live skit. And uh, it has two of my uh, favorite Saturday Night Live characters, Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake in it. And uh, it's all about hashtags. Maybe you've seen this. So Jimmy Fallon walks in and Justin Timberlake is sitting on a couch. And he says, hey, Justin, what's up? Not much, Jimmy. Hashtag chilling. What's up with you? Just busy working. Hashtag rise and grind. Hashtag is it Friday yet? Hey, I brought you some cookies. Hashtag homemade, hashtag, hashtag oatmeal raisin, hashtag show me the cookie. Don't, hashtag, this is Jimmy now. Hashtag don't mind if I don't. These are good. Hashtag get my cookie on. Hashtag I'm the real cookie monster. Hashtag blah, blah, blah. Maybe you've seen it. I saw a t-shirt the other day. Um, Chuck, I'm trying not to look at you right now. Um, A a woman was wearing it. She was likely in her 60s, and she was clearly a grandmother. And uh, she wanted the world to know that she's a grandmother. The t-shirt said this, love them, spoil them, give them back. (laughs) And then, as if it was a nod to Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake, the t-shirt ended with hashtag grandma life. Okay, here's where I'm going. I think it is our temptation at times in some ways to think of God in the same way. Um, We walk into a room and God is sitting there and he asks us what we're doing and how we're doing. We say, man, just grinding. And is it the weekend yet? Because this life is hard. And we just want God to say, yo, hey man, I made these cookies for you. Uh, they will make you happy. Just eat them. Hashtag whatever you want. Hashtag just want to see you happy. Hashtag your heavenly grandfather. 
right? Or we want God to be a heavenly grandmother who just loves us and dotes on us and just whatever you want. Hashtag grandma life. Okay, here, there is a huge problem with this, right? There's a huge problem with this. Um, approaching God this way. Here's why. That's just clearly not how life is. That's not how life is. And in some ways you could say that's clearly, clearly is not how God interacts with us, even though we tend to want to approach him that way. Okay, so again, we're in the Psalms. We're in the Psalms for this summer, as we have been for the last nine summers together. And finally, we're up to Psalm 59. And um, maybe you noticed this, but actually for the fifth time in the 50s of the Psalms, uh, we're actually told why, the, you know, the context around which David wrote the particular psalm. So let me rehearse some of these for you. Psalm 52 said this, that it was to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came, to, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Psalm 54 said this, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Psalm 56 to the choir master, according to Dove on far-off terebinths. I would love to hear that tune. A miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. 57, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy. A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. 59, what we're in now. Finally, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy. A miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Here's why I go through those really quickly. Just in the 50s alone, each one is in this setting where things are not remotely going well for David. And I just read you the ones that actually had headers, but if we actually just walked our way through some of the other ones, which we will do in a moment, what you will see is there's, there's no kind of life presented for us here where God is just sort of some grandmother in heaven wanting to give us cookies. Not one of the Psalms, not one of these Psalms around here Give us that kind of idea. David has been anointed by Samuel. You may remember this in uh, 1 Samuel. And um, Samuel's God's prophet. And uh, he anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And for the most part, after that happens, it seems like things are just not going David's way. They're not really terribly positive. Um. Let me sort of walk through some of what we've actually seen just there where I just mentioned those headings, okay? Doeg the Edomite, he comes uh, with King Saul's blessing to Ahimelech in the town of Nob, and he kills Ahimelech and all of the other priests. That was the priestly town where the priests primarily lived. He kills all the priests and all their families in pursuit of David because Ahimelech had hidden David. Okay, what we, what we had read next was that um, David fled that area to the Ziphites, where actually, if you read it, what you can see is that David's men helped out the Ziphites in any way that they could, and yet the Ziphites betrayed David. And that's a situation, of course, way worse than like your little brother betraying your hiding spot when you're playing hide-and-seek with your dad. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's betrayal. This is big-time betrayal, okay? Um, then David is hiding in Philistia. Philistia is not friendly to God's people. That's where David, you know, took, uh, <laughs> took a a donkey jawbone, and, and went to town. Um, sorry, not Dave, David, um, Samson, thank you. Um, 
But what he does, he acts mad and crazy in order to leave Philistia because they're out to get him. And then we read of David hiding in the caves of Adjulam that we recently read. And now finally, we're actually in this little section in Psalm 59 where it's actually David sort of walking through, he's walked through all of these different events which, in, which have been chronological. But now in Psalm 59, he's remembering, you know what, it was actually crazy even to begin with. So he remembers back to a time before these initial events. Namely, he remembers his life back in 1 Samuel 19 before he was fleeing from Saul. And I want to read you this because this is the context in which this psalm was written. 1 Samuel 19, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael... David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. That's a smart woman. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him, up to, uh, bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came and behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemies go so that he's escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Why am I reading all this again? Why, why go into all this? What seems very, very clear, at least in this collection of psalms that we have for us, um, is that the world is not as it should be. And you're entirely dependent on God doing something about it. What you must rest in is this idea of God's steadfast love for you. Because time and time and time again in David's life, he keeps recounting and then he actually goes, you know what, even before I started, I can go back farther to look at how things are conspiring against me. People are surrounding me. They're out for my life. The world is not as it's meant to be. I mean, listen again. Okay, let me recount some of these again for you. Okay, Psalm 58, just last week, we saw that David was crying out for God's justice to be brought upon leaders who abuse their power. The world is not as it's meant to be. And we're to actually rest in this idea that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right before that, Psalm 57 told us how we can sing to the Lord about his salvation even in the midst of a violent world because he always hears the cries of his people. His, cry, his steadfast love, we heard, will never end and that his glory is above the heavens. Psalm 56 told us that the Lord sees, this was so beautiful, the Lord sees all of our tears and he keeps them bottled up in his bottle. None of your tears are ever lost on him. He knows all of your pain. Psalm 55 told us that we're supposed to cast our burdens on the Lord and he will sustain us. Psalm 54 told us God is a helper who upholds our life when it's falling apart. Psalm 53 told us that when God looks down on the earth, he sees no one seeking after him, but he, almost, he also promises there that he will restore his people. Psalm 52 told us that God will not let those who he, who he, uh, who he loves be devoured by others, whether their words or their actions. Um, psalm 51, that famous confession psalm, says that actually we're all accomplices 
in the evil and in the sin of the world. Again, why am I going into all this? I'm going into all this. I'm recounting these psalms because there's no way you can go to the Bible and, and really read it and really devote yourself to it and leave with some idea that God is the great cookie giver and that he's the great grandfather in the sky um, or that God is sort of blind to how awful the world really is at times. Abuse of power and violence and tears and burdens and falling apart, knowing no one's seeking after him. Words that devour people that seek harm. Sin infestation. I think David or the psalmist, whoever compiled all of these psalms together knew exactly what he's doing when he's putting them all together. On, in some sense, He's recounting how overwhelming all of this is. So this is what we have in Psalm 59. David cries out for deliverance. Would you would, keep your uh, bulletin open to Psalm 59? Let's look at the, look at the beginning here. Right, he cries out deliverance for deliverance in Psalm or in verses one and two, and we have him describe this situation that he's in. Uh, verse three: They lie in wait for my life. I mean, literally, and you remember that story where. They're actually surrounding David's household as he flees and Michael, his wife, um, covers for him. Um, verse four, they, make, they run and they make ready. Verse five, they plot evil. Um, but what I, what I want you to see is that when we're surrounded by this situation that just seems literally overwhelming, people are literally around his house and it seems like everything is against him, when we're overcome with the brokenness of this life, when we find ourselves asking questions uh, in this world of why is sin allowed and why is everything so broken, what David tells us here is even in the midst of that situation, God's love is not absent. There's peace in the midst of this kind of absolute turmoil and it's seemingly non-stop being barraged by how broken things are and how messed up they are and how sin infested everything is. God's love isn't absent. It's not missing or nowhere to be found. It may not be like the great, you know, cookie giver or the grandma in the sky, but it's still altogether present. I want you to see this, okay? I want you to see the structure of this psalm and how the structure is teaching us this, really. So look with me down at verses 5 through 7, then I want us to jump down to actually verse 12 through 15, okay? So, um, actually, it's halfway through verse 4. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. He's saying things have gotten so out of hand. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Do something about the evil in the world. And then you see Salah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. We go down to verse uh, 12. I'm going to start again halfway through that, uh, actually for, at the 4, right above 13. 
for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. He's saying again, do something about this. Act, Lord. And again, he says, Salah. Then again, each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. My hope on some level is that beyond just studying this psalm that you will have in some ways felt it. Um, David is crying out. God, do something about the evil in this world. It's just surrounding me. It's all about. Now, there's the situation, of course, that he had found himself in right there in 1 Samuel 19, literally people surrounding his house trying to kill him. But it seems as though he puts it at Psalm 59 because he's just looking at all this stuff and saying, it's all over. There's so much in the world that's not right. What's going on? And after crying out for God to do something, we have this little word, salah, which you've heard me say, it's, it's not translated because we're not entirely sure what it means. But almost everybody agrees it means something like pause or rest, or it might be related to the word shalom for peace. It's like in the midst of him crying out to God, he's saying, wait, stop. And then what we don't find, actually, is that he's in a place of peace. After both pauses, he gets back to this image of dogs prowling around. He's like, God, it's just, even in the midst of trying to stop and let your peace hit me a little bit, this is crazy. What world am I living in? Why in the world are they allowed to prowl around like this? Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like, um, you know, this, this is probably not something that's just up for little kids right here. Maybe you get in a crazy sibling fight. Your mom and dad, uh, they send you to your room to calm you down. Um, and you, you get out of your room and immediately you're like right back at it with them. You know, it was a vista pause. And you were hoping for some peace. Somebody was hoping for peace in the household and it did not happen. Or maybe, maybe it's like the fighting and the anger, the grudge holding uh, in your marriage has built up to such a place that you're finally like, you know, we actually need to get help. We need to go to a counselor and seek help. And we need, maybe we need to call up our pastor and sit with us. And you go, and that evening things seem fine, and the next day you're just right back at it. Man, how is the world so wrong? Uh, maybe it's like this. I was trying to think of things that seem like they just surround us at times and uh, encompass us. Um, maybe you've become so aware of how um, incredibly detrimental social media is to your sense of self and self-worth and and your place in the world, and you're like, I'm getting off Facebook. I'm done with that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Instagram's going to help my self-worth. <laughs> and you're right back in this place that is actually killing yourself. 
The dogs just keep coming back, it seems as though David's telling us. They just keep coming. And that actually was the story, right? The story began in 1 Samuel 19 and 11 as though you know, they were circling them. And then David and his wife have this plot that he leaves and she takes care of it. And then people come back. And then Saul says, no, no, go get him. It's just a nonstop onslaught. Um, we have a dog. Many of you know how beautiful he is and how lovely he is. And some of you have dogs. But dogs in the ancient world and in parts of the world today, were not thought of as pets. They were thought of as, as dogs that scavenged and, and fought and were a nuisance. Listen to this little account. I actually put this in your meditation page in the bulletin. This is from a guy named Albert Smith uh, writing about his month in Constantinople. He, he wrote this book in 1852, okay? He describes this this way. He says, the whole city rang with one vast riot. And what was the riot? The yelping, howling, barking, growling, and snarling were all merged into one uniform and continuous even sound as the noise of frogs becomes when heard at a distance. For hours there was no lull. I want to sleep and wo- I went to sleep and woke again, and still with my windows open I heard the same tumult going on. Nor was it until daybreak that anything like tranquility was restored. Here's what I'm suggesting to you. The evil of this world, the sin-infected nature of our existence, just seems to touch everything and be everywhere. And sometimes it just feels like way too much. It just feels like too much. And one of the big lessons of the Psalms, I think we're being taught here, Thomas Merton, some of you know Thomas Merton, Um, he says this, there is one fundamental religious experience which the Psalms can teach us all. And he goes on to explain why he thinks this is the main thing of the Psalms, but I'm not going to get there today. But he says this, and he highlights it, and he italicizes it. The peace that comes from submission to God's will and from perfect confidence in him. The peace that comes from... submission to God's will and from perfect confidence in him. Here's what he says, and this is where I want us to kind of go here with this. Um, Merton, Thomas Merton, and the Psalms, which remember they place this word that means rest or pause or peace right in the midst of all the chaos. They never allow us to diminish the pain of our existence or the despair that we feel or the anguish and the torment of life. Um, they They don't allow us to dismiss the emotional turbulence of our lives or the reality of war in the world or people actually plotting others' despise, despair. Um, they don't allow us to dismiss mobs or violence or the abuse of power or all of these things. The Bible doesn't ever turn a blind eye to all of that. And actually, God himself never turns a blind eye to how wrong things are. Never. But in the midst of all of these things, we are invited again and again and again and again to surrender ourselves 
to what is often a mysterious will of God and to commit to this word, this idea in the scriptures, which is God's loving kindness for us. His loving kindness for us. So this is how this psalm ends. Verse 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you've been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Um, So many of you know, and so many of you wrestle with, and um, I've shared with you that I've often wrestled with this myself, uh, the idea of the problem of evil. Um, I think once you sort of begin to engage with it, you begin to understand why so many people are caught up with it and have it as such a barrier to God. It's the basic idea that Uh, How can a loving and all-powerful God allow the evil of the world, right? And I want you to hear again, don't think for a moment that the Bible turns a blind eye to the evil of the world, or that God does, not one bit. But I do think we often have a problem because we mistake love with just the general idea of kindness. We kind of want God to be the grandma who spoils us. You know, the friend who comes in and says, man, I'm sorry you're having a hard day and it's not Friday yet. Just have a cookie. Listen to how C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. It says, by love, in this context, most of us mean kindness, the desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or that, but just happy. What would, we, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happened to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves. Just a really good phrase. Y'all should laugh at that part. Uh, as God's just the old senile grandpa looking down. Oh, I'm glad they're enjoying themselves. And his plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Lewis says this, which I really appreciate his admission. He said, I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed by such lines. He says, I get that. I wish that were the case too. He says, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. Maybe the whole conception of love is actually wrong. Here's what I'm saying. I think that David is saying, you may be, and I think I am too, and I think we all are in some ways, tempted to come to God 
as the great cookie giver, the great grandfather in heaven. Just thinking that him loving you means that all he wants for you is for you to have a good time. To be affirmed in whatever supposedly makes you happy. Um, But it seems very clear from this psalm, and actually as you put them all together, it's abundantly clear. It's abundantly clear that that's not the world that we live in. It's not. And yet, what we have in the gospel is that God's perfect will is always still the best place for us. That's what Merton's saying. I think that's what the psalmist's saying. God's perfect will is always still the best place for us. That his loving kindness, this Hesed love, will one day show us that he was always steadfast with us. He was never leaving us or forsaking us. He was bringing us through whatever he was bringing us through for his perfect purposes for us. And this really is at the heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Right? I mean, the mobs surrounding our Lord like dogs. Betrayed by his own friends. Handed over by one of his own disciples. It just seems to build and build and build all of the problems facing him. The evil of the world put upon him. The religious folk fighting among themselves over him. And it was in submission to God's perfect will. Even when he says, this is not what I will, but you will, Holy Father. That he actually becomes for us the hope in the midst of the problem of evil. In the situations of this world. Since submission to the Father and the experience of evil on the cross that Jesus shows us the steadfast love of God. When everything seems to be surrounding him, going after him, it's in faithful submission to the Father. When he hung there on the cross with the religious leaders having just plotted his death, and now he's hanging on the cross, It seems as though they're winning, that evil's going to win. And think about this too. Who's still ruling over Israel? Pilate. Who's still on the throne in Rome? Caesar. It seems as though every situation that you could ask for is going the wrong way. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross still. But we know that the resurrection happens. God's loving kindness, his hesed love is not done away with because of that situation. Um, think for a moment, even of the Apostle Paul. So many of his letters are written while he's in prison or when he's waiting execution by the Romans. And when you think about it, the, for, mo- for Paul's life, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. There's still sacrifices being offered there. Um, Rome is still the main powerhouse. And not only that, but actually near the end of Paul's life, there's active persecution of God's people. And you would look and you'd say, what kind of hesed love is happening here? There's no way there's going to be any success for this fledgling sect of people called Christians that follow this God who died on a cross and supposedly rose again. And I guarantee you, there's times in your life where you're going to be looking around your life and you're thinking, one thing after another, after another, after another. How in the world can a good God exist? And how can he be all-powerful? 
and really loving in the midst of this stuff. David is telling us again and again, you can continue to follow the Lord in that. Don't give up. His steadfast love endures forever and forever and forever. Friends, we have this most clearly for us in the Lord Jesus. But I'm telling you, we have it all throughout Scripture. You are never safer than in the hands of your Father. And his steadfast love for you will never end. I want to pray for us, but I want to tell you this. Don't approach God like the great cookie giver. You're going to be massively disappointed. Don't see him as the grandfather in heaven. Look upon him on the cross and in the resurrection. There you will find your hope. Lord, uh, we do thank you for these series of psalms that in some ways seem to be telling the same story again, but there's times in our lives, Lord, where we feel that story being told again and things never seem to be going right and there seems to be people out just doing wrong all the time, Lord, and we question what in the world's happening. Lord, we do think of our Lord Jesus himself uh, who goes to the way of the cross in the midst of everything against him. And Lord, um, you showed in the resurrection that your steadfast love for us will conquer all. Give us faith, Lord. Give us faith in the midst of our many doubts, in the midst of our times when um, things seem so wrong and we're tempted to throw in the towel. May we remember how your steadfast love has held people close to you time and time again. Pray this in your name, Jesus. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.